Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Paul Lemo, the president of Lockheed Martin's Sikorsky Division on the Army's future vertical lift competitions and managing supply chains, inflation, and how to drive programs faster. But first, joining us now is Sam Bendett of the Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses, who is also a visiting fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Sam is one of the world's leading experts on unmanned systems, specifically Russia's unmanned arsenal. Sam, great to have you back on the program. It's been too long. Great to be back, Vago. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Sam, uh, indeed, uh, the war uh, continues now into its six months. Uh, six months, Russia's war on Ukraine, uh, rather, I should say, continues into its sixth month. Uh, sixth month. Uh, Ukraine is fielding new capabilities like the HIMARS uh, long-range rocket artillery, precision rocket artillery system, other forms of precision artillery. Turkey brokered a deal uh, between Moscow and Kiev that allowed Ukrainian grain to be shipped. And yesterday, we had the first uh, ship go out with a cargo of 26,000 tons. Um, Russia continues to bombard Odessa and other Ukrainian cities as uh, Ukraine prepares a counteroffensive of its own that the Russians are interested in stopping. Um, the Ukrainians also have told, uh, or rather I should say, President Zelensky has told Ukrainians to evacuate Donbass. Wh where are we now in the war as people discuss this as a stalemate? But actually, there's quite a lot that's going on under the surface of this stalemate, especially how it's going to shape the coming months. Give us your sense on, on where we are and where we're going. Well, that's correct. Uh, it is somewhat of a stalemate, considering that the Russians are considering to press their advantage in the Donbas region, uh, chipping away at the Ukrainian defenses and throwing more forces and materiel at the Ukrainian defenses. But uh, Ukrainians are launching, or at least planning to launch, a, an offensive in the south to draw away Russian forces from the Donbas. So Ukrainians are still capable of conducting counter attacks and counter offensives. It is not known, however, to what extent this will be a lengthy and a significant counteroffensive, considering that uh, if Russians do shift the forces south, this could become another uh, sort of weeks-long slog. But the fact that Ukrainians are capable of concentrating their forces and starting to weaken some of the Russian defenses in the south is by itself significant. HIMARS are having a significant effect. They're hitting uh, Russian infrastructure. They're hitting the the bridges, the logistics facilities, the warehouses, they're targeting command and control as well. But the Russians are adapting as well. And uh, there's a lot less of the, um, of the casualties um, basically at the same rate that were had early on in the war in the first several weeks or even several months. Uh, Russians are also using their reconnaissance fire, reconnaissance strike contours very effectively. They're pulling up significant amounts of long-range artillery, multiple launch rocket uh, systems and forces, as well as mortar forces, which are directed to Ukrainian targets by UAVs. This is a key tactic for the Russian military. It's also a significant one for the Ukrainian military as well. Uh, and so Russians are hoping to uh, soften away Ukrainian defensive, uh, defensive positions in the Donbass. They claim to have captured all of the Lugansk region. Now they're uh, looking to recapture all of the... Uh, 
all of the Donetsk region. And so this stalemate, as you said, is uh, only sort of on the surface. Beneath the surface, there's a lot of activity. There are a lot of attacks and counterattacks taking place. And, um, you know, one of the, th the questions, right, I mean, the special military operation was uh, to uh, take Luhansk and uh, Donetsk in their entirety as declared as independent uh, states uh, at this point. Uh, but we heard from Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov a few weeks ago that actually the war is much broader in its in its aims. Uh, so, I mean, do, do you and the team there have any expectation that this stops uh, at Donbass uh, and Luhansk, or is this something where Russia is going to continue to grind on? Because ultimately, Moscow's goal appears to be to end the prospect of a viable independent Ukrainian state. From Moscow's standpoint, any place in Ukraine that is capable of launching attacks on the Russian forces, including uh, its uh, long-range attacks, uh, HIMARS and other systems against the Russian forces, is basically fair game. And you noted Russian foreign minister admitting to such. And so uh, Russians may not stop at the Donetsk and Lugansk as long as they perceive the rest of the Ukrainian territory as, uh, as a capable adversary, as a region and area where attacks on the Russian forces, which are now in Eastern and Southern Ukraine could be launched. And so uh, this sort of rewriting of the original uh, plan uh, isn't necessarily all new. Uh, it is unlikely that even if uh, Russian forces were uh, were to succeed early on in capturing all of Donetsk and Lugansk, they would have been able to stop because Ukrainian military is not exhausted. Ukrainian military is still capable. I think Russians may have stopped at their original goals if, uh, if, if it was clear that uh, Ukrainian military was spent, but it is not spent. It is still capable of uh, mounting uh, attacks and, uh, and counteroffensives. The spirit in the, uh, in the Ukrainian military is still very high, and, there's, and they're still getting weapons and systems, which are hitting Russians very hard. And so uh, Lavrov's statement isn't necessarily shocking or new, considering Russia's goal of uh, ensuring that Ukraine does not become a competitor of any kind to Russia. Let me ask you briefly about uh, uh, China. Um, I know that that's not necessarily uh, your uh, uh, focus, uh, but the United States and Europe have put an enormous pressure on China not to help Russia, and we've discussed that on the program. And in fact, you were one of the people who suggested that actually Vladimir Putin is likely to go to Iran uh, to try to get some unmanned take, uh, technologies. And indeed, uh, that's what happened when uh, he, Erdogan, uh, and Khamenei met in uh, Tehran recently. Uh, Beijing is now furious with Washington in the wake of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taipei. How could China end up helping Russia in this war? And how could that assistance actually be significant? Because that's one of the reasons people in the White House didn't want Pelosi to go to Taiwan now, uh, in part because of this uh, important dynamic. From a capability standpoint, right, there's no export permits required. All the trains have to do is go from China into Russia, right? Yeah, and, and this is a significant, significant development. If uh, China is angry enough to start sending a lot of material and technologies to Russia to aid uh, in Russia's war, then uh, there is little that indeed could be done to stop that, especially if that uh, traffic is by rail, and even if it's by air as well. Uh, China is still a source of a lot of uh, high-tech equipment that Russia craves and really wants. China is still a source of microelectronics, semiconductors, microchips, and other items. In fact, Chinese high-tech uh, products are now taking a much greater share of the Russian market since a lot of Western and other global brands have left. And so this type of exchange, this type of trade can accelerate, both 
for the civilian market as well as for the military market. Uh, again, uh, there was an earlier rumor that Russia may have asked China for drones, for military long-range drones to aid uh, their effort in Ukraine. Uh, not much has come out of that, or at least not much in the open sources. And so we have a conversation between Russia and Iran that may result in a drone transfer. By the way, I do want to add that there have been multiple flights by Iranian aircraft across the Caspian into Russia. And these are cargo aircraft, which are delivering something. And that something may include disassembled drones or drone parts that the Russian military would have to assemble by itself. So as far as China goes, uh, again, China is a source of a lot of high-tech products that Russia really wants. A lot of the Russian government people, uh, Russian industry leaders, market leaders, uh, a lot of commentators were openly saying that uh, they are looking to China for high-tech products and services now that the sanctions are in place. And this type of Chinese aid to Russia may in fact accelerate. Uh, it's certainly going to be interesting uh, to watch. Um, what Beijing's response is going to be. And again, as we tape, Nancy Pelosi had only recently arrived uh, in Taipei, and obviously this story is going to develop, and we'll have a chance to talk to you uh, in greater detail. Uh, I know our time with you is very short. We've got about another minute or so uh, left. Talk to us a little bit about Russia's new uh, maritime doctrine and why it matters, because Russia has had a couple of setbacks in the Black Sea uh, that may have actually shaped what this maritime doctrine ends up looking like. This maritime doctrine is an update to the earlier 2015 document. And this document reestablishes Russia as a maritime power, as a country with access to multiple seas and multiple oceans. Um, the maritime doctrine spells out Russia's development of uh, both commercial and military shipbuilding. Uh, it is spelling out uh, the reestablishment and establishment of new and older contacts with other maritime powers like India, Iran, Iraq, uh, Iraq, excuse me, and Saudi Arabia even. Uh, but it, there's also a lot of emphasis on science and technology, scientific and technological development for the maritime goals. Uh, a lot is devoted to the Arctic and to the defense of Russia's position in the Arctic. <clears throat> excuse me, a lot is also devoted to the uh, establishment of new technologies, communication, information technologies, cyber technology, cyber systems, including robotics and unmanned systems that would aid Russia's presence in the global ocean and its exploration of the world's ocean, uh, as well as its uh, environmental and uh, commercial and industrial presence in different parts of the maritime domain around the earth. Uh, so there's a lot there. And of course, number one goal for the maritime doctrine is uh, pointing to the United States as the enemy number one and NATO as a significant threat. So now the Russian maritime doctrine establishes an actual adversary against which a lot of efforts are directed. The maritime doctrine establishes goals, principles, uh, and goalposts for the Russian industry, for its scientific community, for its uh, larger maritime community to essentially move towards. And a lot of these, again, are um, aimed at re-establishing or establishing Russia as a significant presence across the maritime domain around the world. Uh, it is uh, certainly going to be uh, fascinating uh, to watch uh, what the aftermath, right? I mean, that's the importance of strategies like this is to help focus everybody's attention. Uh, Sam, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on the program and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Great to be back, Vargo. Paul, it's an absolute delight to finally be talking to you. Well, always good to be back and talking with you, Vago. Thanks for uh, giving me the opportunity and look forward to the upcoming chat.
in, in, indeed. Um, I, I have to start it even though I think uh, you know both sides are in pretty much of a no-talk uh, perspective on the future long-range assault aircraft. Obviously, it's you and your partner Boeing uh, going up against uh, uh, Bell uh, on that. Um, you know, give us your sense on how you feel as you guys go into the sort of the short form of this, right? The announcement's coming out later this year. We heard from General Rugen uh, on, on how this is uh, going to play out. From your perspective, um, how do you feel going into this part of the competition? Yeah, look, I have always felt like we have the right solution for the Army. Uh, as you know, when we talk about Defiant X, we always talk about its maneuverability and uh, its capability to uh, operate in the same footprint uh, as a Blackhawk, be sustained by the same kind of equipment that sustains a Blackhawk. Uh, so we really feel like it'll be an easy fit into the Army infrastructure, uh, as well as providing all the capability that the Army wants in the FLAR program, you know, from a speed, range, maneuverability, etc. You know, when I think about what we're seeing today uh, in aviation operations in Eastern Europe, specifically in Ukraine, you know, I mean, the lessons learned there, you need to fly low and fast uh, and, and at night, preferably, uh, to be able to, you know, operate in those kind of environments. And certainly we think Defiant X is, is going to be the safest helicopter to be flying very low and f at, at the speeds that the Army wants to fly. Uh, it's a very maneuverable aircraft that can hug the terrain uh, safely and, uh, and get the pilots to where they need to be, get the crew where they, where they need to be. So, uh, not, but not only do we think, you know, we have the right solution for the Army, we also think we're the lowest risk and the most ready to produce this. You know, when you think about it, uh, Boeing and uh, Sikorsky uh, build about 90% of the Army's aviation assets today. Um, those programs obviously will, will be coming to an end here in the, in the coming decade, and, and, uh, but we've got the capability. And specifically at Sikorsky, you know, since the Lockheed Martin acquisition, we've invested over a billion dollars of capital in the facilities uh, and in the capabilities uh, of, of Sikorsky. Boeing, I know, has made a lot of investments in their facilities. Uh, for us, it was it was a matter of, you know, the CH-53K coming into production and the need to, to modernize. That was going to be an all-digital helicopter. It's really our first helicopter born in an all-digital environment. Um, so we wanted to upskill, you know, the workforce. We wanted to bring in new tools and then extend that digital thread into manufacturing and sustainment. So that, that's where a lot of that investment went. And so we're ready. We don't have to make a big capital investment to, you know, once we win Flora to go start that production. So that's a, certainly a message that, you know, we've tried to deliver is the readiness to execute, which I think is important with a, a program as complex as Flora. Um, but there are those who would say that the uh, the V twenty put about two hundred hours on, whereas there were some challenges that were going on with the program at the time. You guys did not fly as much then and, and went through a redesign. Does that affect any baselines or schedules or anything at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of set the record straight, um, I wouldn't call it a redesign for us. It was really just a component failure that we had to work through. Um, got that, you know, uh, worked out. And yes, we started flying later, but I think uh, we continued flying even after they retired their aircraft. And uh, we're nowhere near ready to retire Defiant. Uh, it, it still can fly. Uh, it will fly again when we win the program. We plan to use it as a risk reduction asset and continue to fly that aircraft, which I think speaks to the durability. And uh, if you look at its uh, little brother aircraft, if you want to call it that, the Raider, you know, we've been flying the Raider for many, many years now, still flying. We've, you know, been doing flights uh, about every two weeks right now. 
um, because we still, you know, do risk reduction for the FARA program. Even the smaller one helps inform the bigger one. So, um, you know, I think, uh, yes, they had more hours on their demonstrator, but again, we're still flying. We will continue to fly the aircraft. Um, let me take you to FARA. There is a perception uh, that that program may go the way of the dodo after General McConville retires, uh, even though he has a very strong rationale on why he makes the case uh, to get the Apaches. It's a much higher maintenance aircraft, and he wants something that has a lower maintenance footprint uh, and, and higher availability for the armed scout mission. But there is this sense that that program goes off, uh, you know, might not be executed or at least pushed to the right. What's your sense on how all of that, because there is a sense that more of the chips are now riding on Flora, especially if there isn't another program after that. Yeah. You know, I think all of us in industry watch these programs and we, we want to know the answers to those questions as well. All I can tell you is what I see and, and what I have seen from the Army is a commitment on both programs right now, full funding in the budget that, uh, to what we would expect, uh, and full support from Congress. Um, so, you know, kind of hard to predict, you know, where that will go. But right now, uh, full commitment. And um, we're looking forward to flying our competitive prototype next year. Uh, as soon as we get the ITEP engine, we'll be ready to start integrating that, going through ground runs and, and going to, uh, to flight later in the year. Um, I want to. Uh, I'm going to ask one more programmatic question, and then get to the strategic part of the discussion uh, to draw off of your experience on everything from missiles to electronics to the naval sector, and now even in, in rotary wing. Um, two uh, great uh, win uh, for the hundred some odd uh, army for the for the Black Hawk, which was a great win. Uh, but it was surprising to some that you guys didn't win in Germany on the 53K. Um, there was an overwhelming sense the Germans have had decades of experience with the airframe, uh, and we're going to go through with that. A little bit of the feedback we get is Lockheed Martin got a big contract. That was called the F-35. They were unlikely to put two of their largest uh, modernization efforts through you. Talk to us a little bit about how both of those wins sort of affect the base and where that puts you, at, or rather I should say the win and then the loss. What does that do to each of the programs? Yeah, well, we're very excited about multi-year 10. The 10th, think about that, the 10th multi-year for the Blackhawk gives you an idea of how long that that's been around. And we're, you know, today we produce what we call the third generation of Blackhawks. So 120 aircraft there for the U.S. Army with um, uh, upside for an additional 135 that we might sell through FMS. So that's a total of, uh, you know, 255 aircraft uh, potential contract. Um, really excited that'll, you know, keep production going uh, through 2027. Um, and we have a lot of, we're seeing a lot of interest in the Black Hawk, particularly here in Europe and Eastern Europe in particular. You know, as you think about a lot of the Russian helicopters that are flown by our Eastern European allies, not being able to get parts anymore, and, and really I think just wanting more capability, uh, that's where we're seeing the interest in, in Black Hawk continue. Um, you know, on the, on the uh, German heavy lift competition, uh, obviously we were disappointed by the outcome. We still think that the CH-53K is the best aircraft for their mission. If you look at the requirements, it, it um, stacked up, you know, best in terms of, you know, aerial refueling is already on our aircraft, all the other things that they had asked for. Um, but, you know, we'll look, we've had a long partnership with the German Air Force on the CH-53 uh, prior models. We'll continue to support those and, um, you know, and, and talk with them about future opportunities. Let me take you to the question of uh, speed. 
Um, at, in almost every conversation going back to the RAF uh, Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference, uh, whether it was at the Royal International Air Tattoo, uh, whether it's been here, Andrew Hunter uh, spoke to uh, the need for speed uh, in his comments at the uh, Aerospace Global Forum uh, earlier today. Um, you've had more experience in more markets than almost any other executive I know. What are the keys to speed, Paul? And and what are the things that we should be doing if we want to be able to do big things faster than we're doing them now? Yeah, no, great question. You know, I've been around for over three decades in the industry, and and um, various administrations and DoD have talked about going faster. And you know, what I've learned is, listen, unless you change how you do something, you could wish to have speed in in programs, but you're not. One of the enablers that's different today is really this whole idea of digital transformation. And I'll give you some examples of, of how we are seeing, you know, speed in, in our programs. Um, as I mentioned, you know, a large investment by Lockheed Martin in digital transformation, both at the corporate level and then at the Sikorsky level. The corporate level is kind of working on the overarching uh, digital infrastructure that we need, the enterprise resource you know, planning systems, et cetera. And then at Sikorsky, we've been working to, to uh, extend the digital thread into manufacturing and sustainment so that when we have a program like CH53K, which, as I said, was born in this digital environment, um, if you don't extend that digital thread into manufacturing and sustainment, you're not going to go faster. You're not going to reap the benefits of a reduced cost. So what are we seeing? We're seeing us get down the learning curves a lot faster. So the, the CH-53K, if you look at the price of the aircraft, has been coming down. It's not because the quantities have been going up. They will go up, but so far, I mean, we've been kind of flat at anywhere from 8 to 10 aircraft per year. But the price has been coming down very nicely, and that is because of all the digital uh, uh, transformation work that we've been doing at Sikorsky. We're hitting our learning curves a lot faster. In fact, what we say is that you know we're hitting the learning curve of the 100th aircraft by the 20th aircraft now. Um, so that that that's kind of you know how we bring the cost down and how we uh, accelerate learning. Let me talk more about just pure speed on the program. So back on FARA. Uh, you know that we've been asked to build a competitive prototype, as, as our competitor has. We're building that competitive prototype in half the time that we would normally build a prototype helicopter. And the way we're doing that, again, is this digital engineering through to digital manufacturing. We're using a lot of additive manufacturing. We have hundreds of parts on our FAR competitive prototype that are additively manufactured. That's, you know, we, we could spend months, if not years, waiting for castings to come in and now we can go print something in you know days, weeks, or even a month. Uh, so that that kind of acceleration is how you move faster. You know that's that's on our side. There's obviously a lot of you know uh, policies and so forth of interacting with the government on how to get contracts negotiated and things like that that take time. But at least in the things that we control, uh, I think we think digital engineering and digital you know manufacturing and so forth is is a key element to speed. How do we need to think about requirements because you know you you lived the joy that was the, the littoral combat ship um i don't want to bring up any bad memories uh but you know the one of the challenges is that industry sometimes looks at a requirement and says you're the customer i'm going to build this to any way you want to do it um 
and the services sometimes are, well, we have an idea and this is how we want to do things. Flip side, sometimes the customer thinks that, well, you guys game requirements in order to be able to favor yourself or get vendor lock. What, what, what is the kind of transformation? You know, you, you've experienced this across so many different sectors. What's the kind of industry, you know, like you're resetting manufacturing, whether, whether it's you guys or Bell or Boeing, you know, Ted Colbert was talking to us about the same things. Mitch Snyder talks, Snyder talks about the same things in terms of trying to accelerate the process, digital threads and the like. But ultimately then, you then get into the requirements cycle, the, the, the complexity of that. I remember you and I talking many, many years about, about something and the simpler the requirement is, the easier it is to execute ultimately, right? What's, what's the kind of change in the, in the relationship and the fundamental thinking you think that has to change? Because you could have all these tools, but if you just erect barriers in your way, you're just going to move slow. Yeah. You know, I, I think one of the things that's changed over the last, let's say, five years, you know, when you look at um, some of the different acquisition types like middle tier acquisition, other transaction authorities, and particularly on the FEL programs, I think the Army has done a great job of, of you know, building prototypes and working with the teams for a while. R rather than in, in the early days of my career, right, we would get an RFP, we would respond with a lot of paper. And then we, you know, get selected or not. And if you got selected, then it was like, okay, what do you really want to buy? You know, and we'd, we'd be like redesigning everything. I think you're going to find with particularly like FVL that we're going to build pretty close to what you've seen, you know, demonstrated. Um, and, and why? Because through these, these phases that have been going on, we're having a lot of dialogue about the requirements and what's achievable. So I think, you know, acquisition strategies that allow that interaction with the customer and, uh, you know, a discussion about the requirements and what's achievable and what's not achievable are uh, priceless, really, to getting us to a solution faster, getting us to the right solution faster, and not having these false starts where you're, you're building something and you realize after a few aircraft are flying that, well, that's not really what we wanted and it's not going to fulfill the mission properly. So I think that's another way that, that helps speed uh, is to talk about the requirements and work the requirements out between the parties, you know. Uh, the good news is the government's not as uh, afraid to speak in a competitive environment anymore with the, you know, with the competitors. We're having great dialogue, you know, on both the FEL programs. Obviously, now the FLAR is in source selection, so we're not necessarily having that. Although there is a companion risk reduction program that's still going on, and so we do talk about, you know, the requirements there. Um, every CEO in this business is dealing with supply chain crunches. Um, Russian sources of uh, titanium, for example, and then the added uh, demand with with uh, uh, that uh, Mike uh, Schulborn uh, noted uh, from Airbus noted. Look, I mean, we we also can't turn to China for these components, right? I mean, so this drives a fundamental change in how we're doing business, and there will be costs associated with it. And you're also dealing with inflation, like everybody else is. How are all of these pressures manifesting themselves on the business? And more specifically, how are you mitigating these risks, especially in, in terms of um, supply chains that are very stressed? Yeah, yeah. you know, we've, we've experienced supply chain challenges as well at Sikorsky. And, um, you know, most of it is, is has been due to the COVID pandemic. It, it was first, it was people getting quarantined. So they're out of the workforce. Um, then it was people resigning, the great resignation. And now it's, okay, the suppliers have to hire back people. Uh, and I would say that the people part of the problem has been bigger for us than, let's say, natural resources like titanium or whatever. Most of ours has been, when I talk to our suppliers, has been around people. Uh, and the smaller the supplier, the, the bigger the difficulty they've had. 
What we've tried to do is accelerate uh, cash flow to the suppliers. So where they can do block buys on materials, where they can you know, just be steady with their workforce because they know that the work is coming uh, through us accelerating cash. That has worked well, hasn't solved all of our problems, but it's helped. So that's certainly you know, one of the ways that we've been dealing with that. And the fortunate thing about defense is long cycle business, right? Um, and you're more um, uh, in the inflation pressures are muted somewhat, as we've heard Mike McCord, the Pentagon comptroller say, but eventually they catch up to you, right? At, at what point do contracts need to be readdressed? I mean, I know that this is a discussion and a debate that every contractor is having at what point they have to go to their customer. Um, I know your suppliers have been increasing, you know, a little bit, and you said you're trying to work hard to support them. How does this work out, and what does your crystal ball or your internal forecast tell you about when we come out of the other side of this and, and at what point you're going to have to go, you know, go in and talk to Bill LaPant, LaPlante and say, you know, we, we've got to readjust or your army customer or whoever else. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course, if it's a fixed price contract, unfortunately, we don't get a chance to do that. But no contract lasts forever. And, you know, the average contract may be a few years. So as you come out of those and you're renegotiating, that's where you're going to adjust for whatever the, the pricing is of that day. And you'll reflect that inflation. Um, and so in the contracts we're negotiating now, we're talking about everything from, you know, just, you know, realizing what inflation is and here's kind of the crystal ball of what you might expect it to be to uh, let's pay us for what it costs today and let's put an economic price adjustment clause in there so that whatever the economic price adjuster is, then we get that adjustment in the contract. So there's a wide variety of ways to address it with the customer. Um, but, you know, it, it does have to be addressed. Like I said, once you're renegotiating a contract, if it's fixed price, you know, it's on us. If it's cost plus, then we, we can have those discussions with our customers. Paul, thank you so very much. Best of luck uh, on the program and look forward to talking again soon and bon voyage. Thanks, Vago. Always great to talk with you.